0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this um, fabulous event at the Edinburgh International Book Fair. This is sponsored by the Open University, and we're also very pleased to welcome guests from the British Council from all over the world, I think. On my right, Joe Ross will be interpreting this event, but on my left, the reason that we're all here is Christopher Brookmyre. Uh, just before he starts, I must tell you that um, I was sent the proof copy. We'll be selling copies of the finished book. Uh, in the signing tent afterwards. And uh, just one other thing to tell you about the book. Yesterday's Glasgow Herald lists two uh, Christopher Meyer books, uh, Meyer books in the bestseller list, which is extraordinary. There's nobody else there with two books. He's in there three days after publication. So this man is not only a great bestseller, he is, he is the man of the moment. I was sent the proof to read in uh, preparation for this event about a month ago. And uh, I had one day in Paris, and so I started reading it in uh, Eurostar on the way to Paris. And I'd set myself aside the day. uh, I was um, doing this. I had one thing I had to do for business. And uh, I'd set myself aside the day to go and see a special exhibition at the Louvre. I never got to see it. I just had to carry on. (laughs) Such was the pleasure of Christopher Brookmeyer. I think we're in for a treat now. Christopher.
1: (laughs) Christopher. Thanks very much. Uh, It's great to have such a warm response in Edinburgh, Um, contrary to Edinburgh's reputation. (laughs) uh, You'll have heard your applause then. Um, I'm I'm actually delighted to be uh, at the the book festival uh, again for the the 12th year, Um, and also because it gets me out of bookshops, uh, which aren't as as, um, safe or civilised places as they used to be. Um, The reason I say this is uh, I was in Borders, in Buchanan Street in Glasgow. In fact, the Borders store uh, that I actually, when it used to be a bank that I set the Sacred Art of Stealing bank robbery in, um, and I went to, uh, I was signing books, and I needed the toilet, so I said, I've just offered the toilet, and the bookseller shouted after me, hang on, uh, you you need the code for the vandal-proof door. (laughs) Um, And uh, I got there and found that the vandal-proof door had been vandalized, (laughs) so I didn't need a code, but um, I, I did ask them why there was a need for the vandal proof door, and they said, Oh, that's because of the chicken. And, um, yeah, you, you're, your mind's bogg- boggling now, right? Just give it a minute. Um, they said, Oh, yeah, there, there was a, a, a cooked chicken found in the toilets. And I'm thinking, Oh, that must have been unpleasant. You know, somebody stuffed a cooked chicken down the toilet. You know, if I heard of bog roll, we know actually a cooked chicken. And they said, No, no, it wasn't down the toilet, um, it, was, it was on uh, a sort of table next to the sink. At a certain level, uh, and it was still warm. And again, I'm, I'm not quite catching on to this until they specify that it was, it was warm in a particular place. Um, and yeah, um, su- suffice it to say, it gives a whole new meaning to the phrase boning a chicken. Um, I have... Valid questions at this point, Um, not least of which: Why someone who was given to shagging roast chickens uh, was shagging a roast chicken in the toilets at borders in Buchanan Street? Was it just that he couldn't wait? You know, was it was it just that that chicken was giving him a certain look, and there was that kind of chemistry between them and a degree of spontaneity, and suddenly it was like the lift scene in Fatal Attraction. But I think actually the more prosaic explanation is that he wanted to use the toilets there so that he could have his way with the chicken before he got home because it would be cold. Uh, Because, let's face it, what kind of sick fuck (laughs) would want to have sex with a cold roast chicken? And I I think this also begs questions um, about our nation. If we have all of these cooking programs on television, and celebrity chefs, and yet a self-respecting pervert doesn't know how to roast a chicken in the privacy of his own home. I suppose if there were two perverts, they could roast the chicken, but that would be using a completely (laughs) different meaning of roasting. Anyway, apparently 10 minutes after that, the chicken was nowhere to be seen. Um, they found it in the self-help section. It was, um, it was looking up books on s- this, uh, self-esteem, and it was saying, "I feel so cheap." Um, I apologise for that. Um, but the reason I, t- I, I tell that story is, is that I sometimes get accused of having a rather skewed perspective on on this country, and uh, the reality is something much much different. You know? um, I think I'm I'm actually toning it down compared to some of the reality that I bump (laughs) up against. Um, But the the reality we've kind of had too much of is definitely reality TV. Um, And so I I wrote this book um, for everyone else who is fed up with reality TV, is fed up with reality celebrity TV, reality programs, talent programs, celebrity talent programs, uh, WAGs. Um, Actually, this is a book for people who resent the fact that they know what WAG stands for. (laughs) And I got very fed up with um, people saying, well, don't watch these programmes. I say, I don't watch these programmes, but I can't help but know all about them. Um, It's the information equivalent of secondhand smoke inhalation. (laughs) I mean, things like Jordan, who's published her third autobiography. Um, I mean, what part of that woman's life isn't already in the public domain, I don't know and three autobiographies for Jordan. I mean, I make that one for each tit. And my, my arithmetic there is absolutely fine, okay? That's left tit, right tit, and Peter fucking Andre. But I thought that rather than moan about these people on reality TV, it would be more constructive just to kill these people, um, but to do so in a work of fiction, obviously. Um, and there didn't seem anyone more appropriate to do this in fiction, in my fiction, certainly, than Simon Darkort, um, who I brought back for this book. And Simon, um, just to, so that people don't identify too closely with uh, my opinions with Simon's, I've got kind of the Simon scale. Um, with, and it's the extent to which you agree with Simon is uh, a very good uh, barometer of your own sanity um, and your own kind of uh, mental state. It's so, like, start off with, yes, I kind of see where Simon's coming from. Yeah, you stick it to them, pal. Oh, maybe taking that a bit far. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see what we get to in this reading I'm going to do just now. I'm going to try and do that careful balance of it, of it being um, evil and disgusting and quite funny at the same time, but you can be the judge of that. And this is Simon uh, speaking in the first person describing, um, uh, really he's describing action that is, he's got recorded on video. He wakes up in a hotel room feeling very woozy. Something feels wrong, something's disorientating about his immediate environment. He squints, his eyes still blurry and not a little sticky from sleep. That's when he screws up his face, registering that the hotel room is not the one he remembers checking into. He's thirsty like never before in his life. There's a glass of water and a nightstand built into the headboard, as well as a remote for the TV. The TV is showing Strictly Come Dancing. He squints at it, checking for the channel sig that, w- that would contextualise the clip as part of a morning news show. He pauses at the remote again, changing the channel. It shows the same thing. He locates the channel up button, gives it a push, then another, and another. There's nothing on but Strictly Come Dancing. He ceases the frantic switching, now paying more close attention to what has been established as being the only programme on the television. His mouth opens just a little, sign that he's realised more specifically what he's watching and that it's not the new series, it's a repeat. It's the last series, the series he was on. He doesn't like this. You'd think, wouldn't you, that someone of his makeup would be happy that he's on every channel, but instead he seems to find it disconcerting. Pity, he'll be on every channel again soon enough, for real. But he won't be watching when that happens. He reaches for the folder, his hand tentative in its final approach, like he's expecting a static shock from it. He's afraid of what he might find inside. He places it on the bed sheets and delicately takes hold of the top right hand corner, opening it like it's some centuries old tome that might disintegrate. He uncovers a sheaf of A4 papers. They're all copies of his columns, mostly photostats, some printouts of the online versions. He doesn't seem very reassured by such a familiar sight, familiar words. Starting to get scared now, which is odd, because all the clipping says fearless. Darren, the daddy, McDade, Britain's most fearless columnist. He's the scourge of asylum seekers, pummeler of paedophiles. Scourge of scroungers, the valiant rearguard resistance waging a guerrilla war against political correctness, the toast of white van man and the last advocate of that oppressed minority, the white middle class heterosexual male. We're going to hell in a handcart, but it's our own fault for listening to the do-gooders and not being tough enough, tough and fearless like the daddy. Some of the blockbusters that he found picked out in yellow in the clippings file. The inescapable truth nobody likes to bring up about asylum seekers, and I mean the precious few genuine ones, is that if they caused so much trouble in their home countries that they were forced to leave, why the hell would we want to let them start rabble-rousing afresh (laughs) in ours? If you saw some drunken thug getting ejected from a pub for being out of order, you'd hardly invite him round to your house and tell him to make himself at home, would you? It's ridiculous, but I'm not laughing. Generalisation is a word liberals use as a distraction to obscure the bleeding obvious. It's ridiculous, but I'm not laughing. As far as I can remember, there's been no end of fat, sweaty, piss stained prematurely middle-aged arseholes seeking the cheap route to notoriety and populist approval by acting the keyboard hardman in a tabloid. They were little more than drunks shouting at the rain, and like drunks, they were largely ignored because they'll get moved on soon enough, only for an even more revolting specimen to take their place. That was how it was meant to work anyway, but that was before Darren McDead that was before the daddy inexplicably turned his very loathsomeness into a marketable commodity that made him a regular fixture on TV chat shows, comedy panel games, political discussion programmes, question time for fuck's sake, and even consecrating his lovable rogue status as one of the celebrity contestants on that fossilised turd from television's Mesozoic stratum, excavated and resurrected to stink anew, strictly come dancing. <laughs> He pulled off the audacious, cake-and-eat-it strategy of acting like he was a knowing, wink-to-camera self-caricature when he was in TV personality mode, yet still being able to deliver the hard line straight and true in the next morning's paper. String me up, it's the only language I understand. That was his signature, hey, it's all just showbiz quip, delivered with what was supposed to convey a good-humoured self-awareness. He turns off the TV as he passes and makes his way slowly towards what he believes is the bathroom door. Gripping the circular handle, it doesn't move. The TV switches back on. He turns sharply to look at it, confirming where this sudden sound has come from. He sees himself on the screen responding to the record low score the judges have handed down. I saw it. It was a fucking injustice, mate. You were worth at least half a point, more than that total. The locked bathroom is not good. Not good at all. And not just because he's realising how much he needs to pee. Could all be a joke, what with the SCD on the telly, but something's telling him to worry. He goes for the other door, it's locked too. He stands back a second, breathes, tries again in case he's just got himself in a state. No luck. He hauls the curtains apart and finds only a rectangular white panel illuminated from behind and on top of this is a transparent laminated blow up of another choice quote from his column, (coughs) the daddy, more like the slightly strange unmarried uncle. How did we ever lose our moral grip to the extent that the muesli munchers convinced us we need to be understanding of murderers, rapists and other scum? Can you imagine trying to explain to schoolchildren that they mustn't step out of line because if they do, they'll get taken to one side and given counselling? Don't do the crime if you can't face the sympathetic ear. It's ridiculous, but I'm not laughing. Who would you rather find yourself locked in a room with? A thug who knows anything he does to you will be paid back in years of hard time, hot sweat and cold fear. Or one who knows the scariest thing he'll face as a consequence is a weekly session with a guardian reading sociologist called Quentin. (laughs) He stares at the panel for a few seconds. He recognises the words. Doesn't have to read them all, he remembers. But he's starting to ask himself why he's seeing them in lights. And more pressingly, what significance they have to what he now understands is his captivity. A voice booms through the room, causing him to shudder and stiffen. Darren McDade, it says. He looks round for these words, but it seems like it's coming from all directions at once. Are these your words, I ask, and cue the light box to flash. Who's there, he asks. Are these your words? Well, of course they're my words. You know they're my cunting words. Who the fuck is this? He's trying to sound defiant. There's anger in there, but he can't quite disguise the fear. The TV switches itself back on again, no longer showing STD. Instead, it displays CCTV footage of a tall, heavy-set but muscular, shaven-headed white male. Stripped to the waist, the better to show off a body, arms and scalp so oversubscribed with tattoos as to resemble a public lavatory wall bearing at least a decade's graffiti. Hard to gauge his age could be anything between 35 and 50, but however long he's lived, he's clearly lived hard. Very, very white supremacist prison gang crystal meth biker crew hard. He's pacing a short, blank-walled room, restless, twitchy, apparently muttering to himself, though it's a silent feed. McDade stares at the screen, questions racing through his mind. His captor? A fellow prisoner? Then the image switches to an identical blank-walled room, this time accommodating another tall, imposing-looking figure, an athletically athletically built black male dressed in a pair of grey jogging trousers and a tight T-shirt. Looks early thirties, maybe more, maybe less. There's still youth in his face, but a tiredness in his eyes. He's leaning against a wall, arms folded. McDade gets a look at him too, then the screen splits vertically to show both of them simultaneously. There are time codes in the bottom left corner of each image. This is now time to play. Mr McDade, I tell him, I've gone to a lot of trouble to arrange this little rendezvous with these gentlemen. The stakes are very high. Well, your stake is anyway, so I would advise you to listen most carefully. The two men you can see are both visitors from the USA. Both are convicted murderers. Both men were jailed for horrifically brutal gang-related killings. Both men served more than 15 years for their crimes. Of more immediate pertinence, both men believe they're about to enjoy unfettered, unchaperoned and uninterrupted access to a secret anonymous police informant whose testimony was crucial to their convictions. Both men are also under the correct impression that there is very little chance of anything they do to you ever coming to the attention of the authorities. With this, the TV switches to a news report updating the ongoing search for the missing journalist. Nobody knows where you are, Mr McDade. McDade says nothing but casts a glance towards the doors. Now, here's where it gets fun. As we've seen from the previous footage, you're a jolly good sport when it comes to game shows, so I've lined up a little challenge for you. And don't worry, this one won't involve any dancing. One of these men spent the last five years of his sentence undergoing a a voluntary rehabilitation program. The other did nothing but hard time in one of America's most notoriously brutal penitentiaries. To get out of this room, you're going to have to pass through a chamber containing one of these convicted murderers. If you can get past the man who's waiting for you beyond the door of your choosing, you are free to go. To make it an informed choice, I will tell you that the door on your right, which you previously believed to be the bathroom, leads to Mr Rehab, and that the door on your left, which you previously believed to be the way out, leads to Mr Hard Time. I will not tell you which of these two men is which, but I will remind you that both have been informed that you were instrumental in their convictions. He stands frozen, his focus alternating between the doors and the split-screen view on the TV like it's a tennis match. He stands for a couple of minutes, then sits down on the edge of the bed and folds his arms. Nah, he says, this is a wind-up. It's a fucking wind-up. That's when he hears the gas beginning to pump into the room. He bolts upright again in response to the sound, which is coming from a vent high on the wall. A quick sniff tells him it's the North Sea's finest. The cubic volume of this room and the lack of ventilation means that the concentration of gas in the air will become lethal in approximately six minutes. That's how long you have to choose which door you believe offers you the safer route out. He instinctively puts a hand over his nose and mouth. It's not going to save him, but it proves he understands there's no option to abstain. He looks at the screen again. The biker Nazi guy is prowling, unable to contain himself. If there was a sofa in there with him, he'd be pulling the stuffing out of it. The black guy remains impassive, occasionally shifting which leg most of his weight is resting on. McDade takes a few steps across the floor and stands roughly midway between the doors. His face contorts, he can taste the gas. Which door is which? Okay, I'll choose, but I've forgotten. Tell me, please, which door is which? Bathroom for rehabilitation, exit for hard time. He takes one last glance at the screen, then the man of sincerely held beliefs and enduring principles lunges for the bathroom. That's where the first video ends. The following interlude I also recorded for posterity, but for a number of reasons have opted not to share with the general public. McDade emerges into not a bathroom, but a narrow passageway about 10 yards long. He pulls the door closed behind him to cut off the gas, at which point a door at the far end swings open. He pauses, angling his head to try and see what might be to his left or right. Then I emerge from the shadows. He flinches, throwing himself back against the wall. Look, whoever you are, you've got to believe me. I've never been a police informant. I know, I tell him. At this point, he looks up enough to recognise I am neither of the men he saw on screen. I lied. What you saw was just stock CCTV footage. I've no idea who those men were. And as you've discovered, both doors lead to the same place. But it's a lie redeemed if it causes a greater truth to emerge. Wouldn't you agree? Rehabilitation or hard labour. It was a no-brainer, really, wasn't it? Which one made for a safer route? That's why I assigned to the bathroom the option I knew you'd choose, because you're full of shit. (laughs) I was telling the truth about the rest, however. To escape, you merely have to get past the man you found on the other side. Who are you? He asks. I should add that I'm wearing a mask at this point. There's another selection from your greatest hits on the floor just in front of you, I tell him. Read it. He looks down, notices another sheet of paper on the concrete. It bears a blow-up photocopy of one sentence. The greatest tragedy about the death of Simon Darkourt is that none of us will ever get to spend ten minutes locked in a room with him without his guns, his C4 and his henchmen. He looks up, his jaw hanging, his breath suspended. Your ten minutes start now. <laughs> Video two starts by tracking out from McDade manacled to a chair, the chair itself bolted to the floor. He's got a sack over his head and is wearing an orange jumpsuit. I take the bag off and step out of shot. His face is bloodied, though he hasn't had time to swell up yet. He looks ahead immediately and starts fighting against the restraints, throwing himself back in the chair, but it isn't going to budge. Out of shot is a steel table, upon which he can see a car battery connected to two crocodile clips, a basin of water floating a large sponge, a rope, an oxyacetylene blowtorch beside a welder's mask, an unfolded canvas wrap accommodating a selection of surgical instruments, a pair of bolt cutters, and finally, a large hypodermic needle attached to a drip line next to two bags of saline. He pisses himself. (laughs) It's ridiculous, but he's not laughing. (laughs) Now listen carefully, I tell him, because this is about securing your future. If I was to let you go, you would no longer be able to live safely in this country. Do not even begin to kid yourself that the police will be able to protect you. I've abducted you once and I can do it again. If you remain in the UK, I promise I will kill you, but not before an ordeal beyond the worst horrors of your imagination. Do you understand? But but I'm just a journalist, just a pundit. I'll change what I'm writing, just tell me you, what you want. I've told you, I want you to leave. I don't want you in the country anymore. And I'm not merely taking away your right to express your... Well, in light of your earlier decision, we can hardly call them beliefs anymore, can we? I'm taking away your right to live unpersecuted, to live unoppressed by constant fear. You'll just, excuse me, (coughs) if you remain in this country, I will come for you once more. (laughs) Thanks. You'll never know when, you'll never know where. You'll just know that if you stay, you will be apprehended in darkness once again, taken to a place of confinement and killed. Do you understand? He nods like a Parkinson's sufferer. I understand. I'll leave. I promise. I'll leave immediately. You'll flee to another country. Yes, I swear. Seek asylum somewhere abroad. Yes. <laughs> he states this effusively, still nodding, but you can see it in his eyes the moment he realises. So, to recap, Mr McDade, you're now an asylum seeker who believes in rehabilitation for convicted criminals. <laughs> He raises his head, still quivering, but perhaps daring to believe he's heard the punchline and the joke is finally over. He's almost right. Sorry, I lied again about letting you go. Another lie redeemed by the truth it revealed. I'm going to kill you now. Jesus, please, he blurts, imploding into sobs. I take a walk towards the table, causing him to throw all his strength into rocking back. Don't panic, I reassure him. I'm not going to torture you. That would be inappropriate. Instead, you will be the author of your own death, or at least the author of the method. Your words once more, string me up, it's the only language I understand. I lift the rope from the table and carefully begin tying it into a noose. The knot accomplished, I turn back to McDade. I believe it's traditional for the condemned man to be offered a last meal. Would you care for some muesli? (laughs) Thank you.
0: I've never heard you read before and uh, I had a whole series of very um, worthy questions but I really want to ask is why did you become a writer and not a stand-up comic? <laughs> um,
1: I'm actually more shy than it would be. <laughs> 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 and also I think to when you've, when you've written something you can kind of take your time crafting it and making it work. And also stand-up comics um, they have to sell themselves to a hostile audience which is a very different thing. I mean most people come to see a writer have come because they've at least got some... Affection for their work, or at least an interest. Um, another thing about stand-up comics is they—they're very good at knowing what is going to work, or road-testing their material to find out what works. Sometimes I don't know what an audience is going to find funny. Sometimes it disturbs me what the audience is going <laughs> to find funny. Um, I mean, given that the, i did a couple of events last week, uh, and I, I read that piece, and that was the first time I realised that everyone was going to laugh when um, when I read the bit about uh, the. the mcdade's article saying all he wanted was 10 minutes in a room with simon Darcourt. <laughs> See, so you're an evil bunch isn't
0: <laughs> are they more or less uh, evil in your audiences in glasgow
1: um i think my audiences are, are um, just as evil all over the place to be honest <laughs> um
0: i've got lots more questions but it doesn't seem fair to um to hog the audience so if we could take the lights up i will um take questions from from the floor just while I'm waiting, because uh, people put their hands up, we'll then direct the mic towards you. Do you set out to be politically incorrect? Because you, 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 it's brilliant the way you both attack your, your liberal targets and your sort of right wing targets. You really go for everyone, don't you?
1: Yeah, I, I've never really quite understood what the term political, politi- political correctness means. It's, it's become a meaningless term. I mean, I wrote in a, a previous book that uh, the phrase political correctness gone mad is the, the distress call of the thwarted bigot. You know, it's the pe- people who are really annoyed that they can't call um, they, they can't call the niggers, the poofs, and the packies by the names they're supposed to be called anymore, <laughs> because some people get sensitive about these things. Uh, at the same time, um, um, Brendan Burns, a um, comedian, years ago, came up with a great definition of the, the more sort of um, uh, the sort of intolerant liberal definition of political correctness when he said that political correctness was largely about people getting offended on someone else's behalf, and so. I think it's always in the intention, you know, w- with with humour that's described as politically incorrect. It's always in the intention. It's like who who's the the joke poking fun at? I think it's a question of if your heart's in the right place, rather than um, using prescribed terms.
0: The um, the the book is incredibly funny, as you've seen, and it has all these wonderful targets. But it's also brilliantly plotted, and there's the most sensational twist towards the end, which I think. Um, I bet nobody ever gets, but it, I certainly nowhere near. It really comes as a great, hugely enjoyable shock. Do you start with the plot, or do you start with your target, in this case, um, celebrity television? Where did you, What's the starting point for this book? Or is it with Simon Darkor coming back? Or no, that, it's, it's, well, it's different though? with each
1: book, but um, with this book, um, I, I think I had, I had a lot of people down the years asking me when I was bringing back Simon Darkor, but even more people asked me when I was bringing back Angelique Xavier and Zalinez and wanting to know what happened to these people one year on um, when they were supposed to meet up again. Well this book actually starts about six years on and, and does explain what happened then um, and I knew if I brought back Simon I'd have to bring back Angelique just logically because the police would want her involved but I was waiting until the right story came along and it it's just kind of inspiration struck I think really I just thought well if Simon Darkort came back what would he's been lying low what would what would cause him uh, to to come out from hiding, and I wrote a short story about five or six years ago about Simon Darcourt, where he's mulling over the fact that towards the end of a big boy didn't Run away. He learned that he's a father, and um, I thought that one of the things that would be that would be funny about Simon was that he would actually be even more ruthless um, and, and resourcefully evil if he thought he had a moral agenda. Um, so I thought that was something I ought to play with. Um, so th- I guess that was the inspiration, and, and I suppose with. Things like reality TV. There'd been attempts to satirise reality TV before, but to my mind, they were almost in the category of affectionate satire. I thought, you know, let's have some truly (laughs) hate-filled satire. Um, So a whole load of ideas coalesced at the same time, and and, um, also I decided if I was going to bring back all these characters, essentially it's a sequel to two different books, that it would have to deliver what both of those original books delivered, and so. I was a long time waiting for a book, an idea that was going to fulfill all those criteria. But I think I have. I think this is the best book I've written. It's certainly the book I've most enjoyed writing. Hi. Thanks for that reading, by the way. That was great. Um, Do you, I just wanted to ask, do you think that the modern political situation in Scotland is, provides as sort of the the richness for (laughs) taking the piss, basically? (laughs) The way that, say, Florida does for Carl Heissen, I'm thinking, because you know the, the link with Carl Heisen has been mentioned so many times with you. I wonder if you feel that the modern situation in Scotland politically is, is doing that for you. Um, it, it I'd imagine anybody in the, the, the sort of native country, and in this in this country, you can kind of get to look at Scotland and look at the UK as a whole. Anybody would, if they've got a certain perspective, see. <coughs> see the, the the political reality in in those terms in terms that they can they can ridicule um i 'm inclined to think that it is more to do with my perspective than the material that gets thrown up um i 'm often asked you know if when I 'm planning to write another sort of political novel and I generally tend to wait until the political landscape itself has somehow altered or ma- you know matured um so hence when I wrote Boiling a frog it, it was I thought it was timely because I thought this was it was good to write a book about the the very beginnings of the Scottish Parliament. Um, And I I didn't really return to the the realpolitik of Scotland until, um, I suppose, attack of the unsinkable rubber ducks, because it it just, to me, this was a more important agenda at the time, and it still is. I mean, we are still seeing people trying to get creationism into classrooms, um, which should be resisted with the biggest stick you've got. There's
0: a question here. Some of your terrorist attacks are quite detailed. I'm just wondering if you make these up in your head or if you
1: uh, research (laughs) these at all. Well, I suppose one one of the um, great things about having the world of fiction at your fingertips is being able to um, put all of the the characters into the positions you want them. I've had a lot of people say, you know, it's a good job you're not planning crimes. Um, because the the crimes seem very ingeniously planned. And it's easy to make them look really well planned when you're controlling the police as well as the (laughs) bad guys. (laughs) That's the secret of uh, of making an ingenious heist story, is the fact that you can actually um, make sure the police buy all the dummies that your robber sells. But you you can't depict the police as complete idiots, otherwise the the dummy part doesn't work. I mean, this book is is largely um, about magic, about conjuring um, there was a degree of that in The Sacred Art of Stealing with the character of Zalanez, but in this book he he's actually kind of properly reclaimed his his heritage and has decided to to become a stage magician, um, which allowed me to explore a great enthusiasm. I, mean, I dipped into this a little with Attack of the Unsinkable Rubber Ducks because it was about um, the tricks that psychics and mediums use to try and convince you that they have superpowers, um, but magicians are more honest about it they just want to put on a show superpowers like Yuri Geller's superpowers which I always think he's got an amazing superpower he's got the, uh, the power um, to bend metals using merely st- the, the, the forces in his mind but only if he's holding the metal in his hand <laughs>
0: do you have any sacred cows at all? I mean, is there anybody that you won't touch? Because it seems to me in your writing there's absolutely none of us are safe from your...
1: No, um, it's, it's more... I'm aware in this book that this is... Um, I'm kind of going after soft targets, but that's, that's Simon Darkoort's, um MO. He goes after soft targets. So going after reality TV, I mean, I'm taking the piss out of it, but I'm not seeing it as a, a threat to society that needs addressed. You know, this is not, <laughs> not a book with a, an impassioned agenda, um, like, like its predecessor, the Rubber Ducks, did have an impassioned agenda. Um, no, it, it's. Th- I, d- I don't have any sacred cows. I mean, we probably all do have um, th- things that we 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 want to protect. But I, I, I realise it's if you're being so merciless in satirising some things, then you probably have to be aware if you're ever going soft on something else. Otherwise, it, it will just look like prejudice rather than a sort of sceptical attitude. There's certain things you can't take the piss out of because it's impossible to take the piss out of them. You know. <laughs> Um, there's just some things that are kind of beyond satire. I think if MDU is familiar with Scottish football the past season or so, that, um, <laughs> is that if MD's read any of the press statements released by the Ranger Supporters Trust, that is beyond satire.
0: Are you moving away from Scotland? Because um, with this book, although your, your police officer is, is Scottish, she's only very tangentially, and almost all the action takes place outside Scotland.
1: Yeah, almost, almost all of this book takes place in London, but that's because um, everything in the media has to go through London. Um, and, but no, it, it just it seemed appropriate as well um, that if it would be London, because also it's where if Simon Darkor's going to go and kidnap celebrities. He's going he's, he to have slim pickings if he's in Paisley. You know? <laughs> uh, so he, he's, gotta be, he's, he's got to go where the big game is to be, to be hunted. No, I'm... I'm um, my new book that I'm started writing uh, is is set in Scotland again, but it is um, very different territory or, or slightly different territory. It's, um, I'm I'm just tiptoeing into the the genre borderlands that will take me into science fiction, but just into the genre borderlands. <laughs> Although a, a critic that that I spoke to the other night when I said this to him, he said, "You've always been a science fiction writer <laughs> uh, because you write about." A Completely different world. It's just a, a few degree tangent to reality, and I thought that's actually one of the most insightful things a critic's ever said to me.
0: There's um, lots of recognizable celebrities in here. It struck me that McDade was probably Richard um, Littlejohn in the, the Sun. I hope he's not in the audience. And um,
1: are you expecting Ritz? <laughs> um, well, I've, I haven't made any of the, the celebrities in here. Too specifically one person. I mean, in the case of that that um, tabloid character. I was thinking of a combination of Richard Little, John Kelvin McKenzie, John Gaunt, and go back to the 80s. You've got guys like um, what was his name? Was it Gary Burchell, uh, Gary Bushell, rather. Burchell's B- a woman, Bushel, she? G- yeah. G- Gary Bushell. You know, um, and the f- so I've done that with all the other celebrities, and there's a, there's a wag character that is like a combination of of all of these footballers' wives and. And the reason for that wasn't so much to protect myself from Ritz as that I realised um, everybody will hate a different one of these people and I don't want everyone to feel left out, you know. I want them to feel that there was a wee bit of the person they hate included in that character.
0: Um, I just wondered at what stage you uh, realised or decided that you were going to be a writer and what did your parents want you to do?
1: Um... Well, I should, at this point, mention that um, when I was writing this book, my parents have been very, very supportive, and they they, they love my work. I mean, I, I got my sense of humour from them. Um, I, 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 we had a particularly skewed way of looking at things, but but um, everyone has limits, and I got I actually got a text from my mother when she was reading uh, the manuscript of a Snowball in Hell that said simply, "You are one sick bastard." <laughs> I, I'm not finished. <laughs> Who spawned you? (laughs) Um, At which point I thought I have surpassed myself with this thing. (laughs) But I I started writing as soon as I could write. I I was writing these stories from, I think, in about primary two, primary three. So, yeah, I've always been doing it for my own amusement. (laughs) Over here.
0: Hi. um, When I read, as you put it, kind of hateful satire, I often find it very cathartic to read in that sense of, thank goodness I'm not the only person in the world who thinks these things. And I was wondering...
1: Where are you on the... the <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't ask. Um, <laughs> but I was wondering if you found it cathartic to write, and if so, if there was a particular character or book that you felt that about?
1: Um, I think quite a lot of my books are very cathartic to write, and this this one, um, enormously so, uh, it's in common with, with A Big Boy Did It and Ran Away, the thing about Simon Darkour is that you can pour all of your own dislikes and prejudices into a character like that and exaggerate them and blow them up. And you see them reflected back in a very ugly way so that you, you realise, well, maybe I shouldn't feel quite so strongly about that in future. Um, someone once said to me, you're only as big as the smallest thing that annoys you. And so it's very good to look at the things that are bothering you. But th- there's there's sometimes there's, there's there's books I've written where it, the the cathartic aspect has been to see that this sort of thing shouldn't be bothering you. And there's other books where it's been it, the 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 therapy aspect has been to try and get all the things that f- seem like a sort of s- source of of anger about something and pull them into focus and put them to work. So, I suppose a book like Attack of the Unsinkable Rubber Ducks* would come into that category, but this one is just um, me having fun with with some things so that I don't take them so seriously in future.
0: And Um, then this gentleman's next. In a tale etched in blood and hard black pencil. Yeah. You did a brilliant job of writing from the perspective of children Mm. and teenagers. And and that's the only time in your books that I recall you doing that. Is that something you're going to do again? Because there aren't many people who do that so well. Well,
1: Thanks for um, putting it that way. Uh, I actually thought it's indicative of never having quite got past uh, an adolescent (laughs) perspective (laughs) or a juvenile perspective. But um, I I actually, I'd written, um, when I'd written uh, One Fine Day in the Middle of the Night, there were a few short Pieces that were characters remembering their school days, and then you in know a, in a, a big boy did it and ran away. There was these two sort of young tearaway characters that end up caught up in the terrorist plot, and I enjoyed writing from their point of view. And I thought that would be something that I realised I was comfortable writing that way. And the book I'm I'm going to write next does involve um, a whole load of teenagers from a, a Glasgow school on a kind of counselling stroke retreat after a school tragedy, um, who are taking it with the in the spirit that you'd imagine as in (laughs) a few days away in the middle of nowhere so they've got as as much drugs and alcohol as they could smuggle and they're all trying to get off with each other and um, write all their various prejudices and and grudges they have against each other Um, so it's something that I enjoyed writing about and it's something that I'd, I'd want to write about some more Christopher, great titles for your books that are often seductive even before you open them. You said you're working on a new book. Very recently, Tony Benn was sitting there. And in front of the audience, he said he was going to do letters to his grandchildren. And when he was Minister of Energy, the map of Britain was upside down because of Scotland's oil. No one pointed out that Walter Scott had done, you know, Tales from a Grandfather. And it sounded like plagiarism. For your titles, how far down the plot before you decide on the seductive title? Or do you sometimes start the other way around? Um, I usually start with the title um, because I I think that the title informs the book to an extent. It informs the tone that you're going to write about. And I like just the thought of knowing the name of the book I'm, I'm working on. Um, the only exception to that really was A Tale etched in Blood and Hard Black Pencil, which I, I didn't have a title when I was writing it, and I thought one would emerge while writing it, and it didn't. And at the end, I came up with a the title that wasn't I wasn't allowed to use, which was, uh, uh, was Peter Pan Got Shot Down Over Paisley. Um, <laughs> which had, was, was actually an appropriate sort of an image to do with, with, with growing up, but... Um, the Peter Pan books trademark caused a problem with that. <laughs> and um, with a, a Snowball in Hell, uh, at one point I did... I, I conceived it as A Snowball in Hell, but then at one point I um, wanted to call it The Great Grease-Tailed Shaven Pig Hunt um, for reasons that are explained in the book. But, and I thought, well, oh, it's a good title, and I, I said to my editor. And then I changed my mind again because I thought any time I told someone this, I had to really carefully rehearse it in my head. And I thought, if I can't get the title right... Um, what's the chances of someone getting into a bookshop? There was, there was also um, the problem of uh, that if I put the word pig in the title, then I might end up being photographed with a pig again, which I would really like to avoid after what happened to me with, uh, when I won the Woodhouse Awards, where they do take your photograph with a number of piglets, um, and it was not the most comfortable photo opportunity. <laughs> um, in fact, that wasn't even the worst thing about the photo opportunity, because you, you get an enormous Jeroboam of champagne, from um, Bollinger, and uh, you'd think getting your picture taken with a big Bollinger Jeroboam um, would make it look like you're holding a giant bottle of champagne, but it doesn't. It just makes it look like the bottle of champagne's normal size and you're a dwarf.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This lady next in a Even though you said, somebody said that you write a slight sort of few degrees angle from reality, one of the books I've enjoyed most has been One Fine Day in the Middle of the Night, where the school scenes mm. just speak to probably everybody who went to school in the 70s, I think, including those of us who didn't go to a, a fairly large school in Scotland. How much like your school days was that?
1: Um, I, I drew enormously on, on my own school days for that book and for A Tale in Blood. Um, it was amazing how much I recalled when I started writing about it, um, especially in, in a, a Tale Extern Blood. I... It was strange in that there was things that I ended up remembering that I, I wouldn't have, if somebody told me about them a year before, I would have thought, did that really happen? And then once I started the process, the book could have been ten times the length that it was. I mean, I, as it was, it was. It was I, I tried to restrain myself. Obviously, I didn't restrain myself with the language, because um, that was the only time I was asked to include a glossary. <laughs> um, which I. I, I included a glossary at my publisher's request because they said, well, primary school language is even uh, you know, e- even more thickly dialect heavy than, than, than my books normally had, and, and um, there'd be very regional specific slang, so I agreed to do a glossary, but my um, mischievous contrary nature meant that I, I came up with a glossary where all the terms, probably all the definitions probably require you to understand as much Glaswegian <laughs> <laughs> as the words are supposed to be illuminating.
0: There's a question over here, I
1: think. Hello. Evening, Christopher. Oh, actually. Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, you've talked about uh, tiptoeing towards a, a different genre with the next book, uh, namely science fiction. Uh, are there any other genres you see yourself um, attempting to move towards in the future? I'm thinking particularly of the as-yet-unwritten great Scottish football novel. Yeah. Um, that <laughs> must say, that's still kind of... Uh, a, a future ambition. It's the question is coming up with a story that hasn't been told before and also a story that isn't going to bore the arse off if everybody that's not interested in football. Um, as for another genre that I'm tiptoeing into is, is horror because of the what I've got in mind for this, um, this this novel I've just begun work on. But I suppose given what I've read already tonight, um, there will be people who <laughs> would make the case that I've been writing horror for quite some time.
0: You could write a coroner's manual, couldn't you?
1: My wife would probably write a coroner's manual, but that's where I get a lot of my technical information. Question in the middle here.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask initially, um, what writers do you admire and what do you enjoy reading? But then you brought up the issue of language, and I also want to know what problems have you had having your work translated.
1: Um, <laughs> well, first of all, I'll say that I'll plug my current favourite writers, Neil Stevenson. Um, who wrote The Baroque Cycle. And I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm reading his new book, which is called Anathem, which is also fantastic. But the, um, the Guardian asked me to review it, and I don't normally review books, but I thought it's a good chance to get a book like two months early. But it's the usual length for a Neil Stevenson book, so it's like you could actually batter someone to death with it. It's like <laughs> a 1,000 pages long. Now, I, I, when I realised this was a, there was a, a, a British Council involvement in the event tonight, and there would be some people coming along from other countries, I thought, God help you, that was a probably not the the perfect event for that um, given some of the content because I I have had my problems with um, translation. Uh, I had one fine day in the middle of the night was translated into Hungarian Um, and it's my favourite cover because uh, the book came out in probably just just about pre-DVD age and there's a lot about movies and sitting up watching movies on video. And the, the cover's fantastic because it's have exactly the size and design of it. a videotape. So it's like a videotape, but a two-word title. I thought, one fine day in the middle of the night becomes two words in Hungarian. <laughs> um, and you just never, you've no idea what, whether you'll ever find that out. You know, I'm never going to know what the Japanese equivalent is, for instance. But my wife happened to be working with a Hungarian doctor. And he'd asked um, what, what I did. And she gave him a copy of this book. And she said, it went out of interest, what is this two-word title? And he looked at it and his eyes bulged a little and he went, Oh, it's um it translates in English to Paradise Fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually a brilliant title for it. um and in fact I believe it was it was John Milton's first title before <laughs> before his, his editor told him to rein it in. Um but I, I, my biggest problems with translators was my first French translator, um, who was rubbish. And um, I got the vibes that he wasn't going to be the best translator when the first letters and emails he sent me, the English in them was absolutely diabolical. And I, I thought, well, my French is non-existent, but you'd think a translator would at least be able to write in English. And I subsequently learned that his, um, his father, uh, was a big-name French crime writer on the same imprint, so it was the kind of sinecure for the idiot son. Um, and just to give you an idea, I mean, again, I, I don't know if I go at someone else because I'm I'm not multilingual, but an awful lot of his, his queries that he sent me, he sent me 400 queries for Country of the Blind, um, some of which were things that were answered on the very next page if he had read it. Um, but just, you can judge whether I'm being harsh, I'm going to give you some of his queries. Some of them are cultural and some of them, You'd think, now this was 1997, right? I had the internet then. We were exchanging emails, right? So um, let me give you just some, some examples here. Some, as I say, fair enough. Uh, bottomly, he suggests small arse. Um, what does mean gub? Um, Houston, we have a problem. What do you refer to? <laughs> what are the dry heaves? <laughs> What does mean Boby? <laughs> in Big Bobby? What is a Protestant? What are the Waynes? Who is John Lydon? What does SWP stand for and RCP? What is the Vegan Organic Hamster Protection League? That, Nicholas, is a joke. (laughs) This one I love because it's so self-referential. What does hing me (laughs) mean? Do you know what the answer is? Hing (laughs) me. What is the meaning of when you're pissed out of your face? (laughs) Could you explain schadenfreude? (laughs) Which kind of means he was ignorant in several languages. (laughs) What dish is the haggis? I know Fred West from your previous book, but who is Rosemary West? <laughs> Take a wild fucking guess. What is a heed bummer? And what does Bampot mean? Who is Rod Hull? And, and Johnny Foreigner? What scientist is Stephen Hawking? What does numpty mean? <laughs> you're looking at one. And then his final one here, your tease out. <laughs> he, s- he suggests you're finished. And he was.
0: I think it's exceedingly hard to follow that. So, unless somebody has an absolutely killer question. I think I'm going to uh, end one minute early because... Well, I've got... I'll uh, well, can, fantastic. I can no, Just, just, just a
1: if there's no one else that has any questions, I began by telling you something that happened at Borders, right, um, in Buchanan Street. Here's something else that happened at Borders, right? <laughs> uh, Mark Billingham and I... Mark is actually sitting over there. Um, and I were doing an event at Borders, Buchanan Street, and we were in the staff room, and we saw this pinned to the wall in the staff room. And we got... First, we both were in such a state laughing at it. We had to get them to... Con- confirm that this was genuinely a letter. They'd had to write an apology. It was, it was legit. We got them to photocopy it for us, and we kind of divided rights um, that we'd be able to read it um, to audiences in future. Uh, but if we were doing events together, which we've done subsequently, that we'd, we'd kind of decide who was going to read the letter. Usually me, because Mark can never finish it. He's usually... <laughs> in a complete state before he gets to the, the end of the letter. Now, I should also mention, this is, the address in this is Milton in Glasgow, um, which, as you know, is not a place where they sell many fainting couches, right? But, Dear Sir, Madam, I am writing to express my disgust at an incident that recently occurred in your premises. My 15-year-old son recently returned from a trip to the city centre with his friends. When I asked where they had visited, they mentioned that they had been to Borders in Buchanan Street. Imagine my horror when I subsequently found a pornographic magazine under his bed. After I'd composed myself, I deduced that, as it was still contained within a Borders bag, must have been bought from your store. (laughs) If you insist on selling this filth, may I ask that you not do so to my son, who, although very tall for his age, (laughs) surely should have been asked for some form of identity during the said transaction. The reason for my letter is not to seek compensation, as that is not the issue. However, I just find it wholly irresponsible to sell magazines such as Big Soapy Tits to my son, no matter how old he looks. Yours, a concerned mother. And on that note, I will bid you good evening.
0: Thank you all very much indeed, what an amazing author and what a fantastic uh, audience and what a wonderful way to spend an hour to uh, extend and prolong the pleasure, £16.99 and Christopher will sell you a copy of his new book or if you pass £5 under the table he'll give you a copy of Big Soapy Tits. Let's let's go to the uh, signing tent.